Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the Product in LA podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Cole, and this is an opportunity to shine the spotlight on some of the exceptional technology leaders we have as part of the LA community. With us today is actually still Travis Corrigan. This is going to be a special episode, part two of my conversation with him. It was a conversation so nice, we had to publish it twice. But uh, before we get back to Travis, uh, a word from our sponsors. Product in LA is brought to you by Uruit. Do you need help completing your roadmap items? Uruit is a digital product development agency with over 15 years of experience helping US companies build web and mobile apps by embedding directly into their Scrum teams. Uruit's expert full stack software developers provide quality code to help you get the job done. If you need React or Angular front end devs, or perhaps help with Node.js, .NET, or Python development, DevOps, or even product or design to help solidify requirements, they're ready to help you close out features and actually release updates to customers. Learn more at uruit.com. That's U-R-U-I-T.com. We're also brought to you by the Product Managers Association Los Angeles, available at pma.la. They are the largest professional organization for product and designers in Los Angeles. With more than 3,000 members from over 500 companies, they host monthly meetups, organize the Product Leader Council, where CPOs and heads of product connect in small six to eight member pods, and have a mentorship program where they connect working product managers with students from underrepresented groups to build a better, more diverse next gen. To learn more about PMA, go to pma.la. To learn more about the mentorship program, go to pma.la slash mentorship. And now, more for my conversation with Travis Corgan. A lot of times when when we have like kind of these after these after conversations, like there's so many gems that come out. Like totally. the last one with Derek uh, Derek Kwan, gosh, he had a really interesting perspective. He was talking about poker and product management, and in our kind of like after talk, hey, recording. We were, I just hit record. Yeah, I'm recording. Yeah, okay. I and mean, we were just we were just chatting through and hanging out. At the end, he was talking about how important it was for regardless of whether you're doing well or not well to repetition to be able to replicate it mm -hmm. like and like for him that was really important it was like oh no this came out like when we were just kind of hanging out at the end um so yeah no it's definitely I, i'm gonna start recording these just in case it's something that's interesting that we want to do something with throw it out there but um yeah no thank you again like like i said you know known you for five years, feel like I'm just meeting you that the, the research is really interesting. I've heard you talk about that, you know, 1200 research hours before or interviews before, but I don't think I've ever put together the, the, uh, the concept that like the reason you are doing what you're doing today is the research. Um, I've seen you more as like a product person and mm -hmm. kind of an organizer. And I don't know why I didn't click till now because you, you, you've talked about like, you know, heavy metal is absolutely a, a, a project where you want to do better user research and you get, you get upset that people do it so poorly. And so you're like, ah, oh, it's, I, I can help people do this better. Um, but I never put that together. It was, it's really the passion that lies the heart of it is, is the research. That's, that's super interesting. Yeah. The, the, the key thing about the research is that it is a one of the few things I've found to be able to systematically bust one's blind spots. Mm. So we talk about testing assumptions, but there's a bunch of assumptions that you have that you don't know you have. And entrepreneurs spend a lot of time and money 
throwing shit against the wall and then looking at analytics and then not making an even better decision. Like the, the number of AB tests that where B beats a, the success rate on that is like 16, 17%, which means that your A probably sucks. Like your, your, your preconceived notions about what is going to work, like your prior assumptions, like you're, you're a PhD, right? And so the number one thing you do when you write a paper is you have to state your priors. You have to state your intellectual priors, right? which means that you have to find them in the first place. But most founders don't realize they have priors. They've just put a, together a couple of different concepts and then spend a bunch of money trying to put that stuff together before they even really find out that it works. And, and there's something that I love saying is just like, like user study will, you know, um, you know, four months of product development will save you two weeks of user research. Right. Um, and, and that, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, we just got to build, you know, build, measure, learn. I was like, what if you could just do learn first (laughs) the learn part is free it's called google scholar uh it's also called having 10 interviews um and pretty quickly you know there's a lot of empirical evidence that after about the fifth interview you found mostly 80 percent of the unique insights you're going to have for that version of the product or that that version of the line of questioning that you're looking at so it really doesn't take too much and there's, there's sort of a meta blind spot i think a lot of people have is we have this bias for quantitative information because we all had a stats professor that said if the sample size is less than 30 it doesn't matter it's not statistically relevant not statistically relevant but what they didn't say is that it's still pragmatically relevant uh-huh. right we uh-huh. tend we, we we all pray at the altar of statistical significance but that only gives you confidence that the direction you're in is good it doesn't tell you what direction to go in that's qualitative. Qualitative is, is like a compass. Statistical, uh, quantitative is about how thick the line is once you've picked a desti- uh, picked a direction, right? And so you need both, honestly. And I, I, I got, I really got this at Beachbody because I got to wear a lot of hats. I was, I was employee six at that division, wow. and by the time I left, we had two fifty, and we had gone from wow. six to one hundred fifty in eighteen months. We did eleven product launches in eleven months. It was bonkers. It was insane. And during that time, I consulted two product. I had this like nebulous title called director strategy, which effectively was just like, we need Travis just to be smart on anything that he can be. <laughs> Travis to be Travis rather, maybe not necessarily smart. And so I, <laughs> I had, I was doing qualitative research, user research. I also had, I also was responsible for the data layer and all of the analytics for Beachbody On Demand. So I was the business intelligence quant guy okay. and the user researcher qual guy at the same time. Um, and so I got to see how insights and interesting little patterns that I would have when I would bring people in to do user interviews would spark the idea for how to query the quantitative data data differently than I would have thought about it before. And no amount of like querying the data would have helped me find a new way to ask that question. Right. And so Oftentimes we try to really think about in research, we think about finding the answer because we want to be right about our ideas. Right. But I, I find, and that's, that's a very natural place to be as a human, but there's, if you get stuck in like the, I, all my ideas need to be right. Otherwise, you know, my identity sort of collapses in and of itself. 
you're never really going to graduate to where you can really be super effective, which is my ideas are maybe at best hints at things to investigate further. And what I find in user research is that it not only answers some questions, but the real value of it is it helps me come up with better questions. Mm. And the better questions help me in either follow on user research interviews or, uh, or investigating uh, quantitative data differently, applying a different lens to the quantitative data than other people have applied to it, right? So it's a sort of novel perspective. This is where, this is, for me, I think user research is like one systematic way to come up with contrarian views that happen to be empirically right um, because they're hiding in plain sight. And the reason why they're right is they were right all along. We just were invisible to them because they were hiding in plain sight. And so I, I think that that part, that superpower, I think of having a system of overcoming one's own blind spots is, is amazing. And there's a study which is, has one of my favorite titles. It's, I'll give you the actual title and then I'll tell you what it means. It's like, um, cognitive sophistication does not attenuate cognitive bias, which is another way of saying you can't outsmart your blind spots. Uh -huh. uh, and the, the effectiveness, what's effectively saying is this, is that they, it was a, it's a, it's part position paper, part literature review. And they did like a dozen experiments to just write this one paper. Okay. And so what they looked at is people of different, they gave a bunch of people cognitive ability tests and then they gave them a bunch of other things that test for bias. And what we found is that your intelligence is a function of how much data you can process. So imagine that mm. your brain is like a pipe and people whose brain architecture can't process a lot of information, um, will miss things that people with bigger pipes will see, right? Sort of the difference between, if you sort of just like put a smaller pipe inside of a bigger pipe, the difference is that. And so right. smart people with bigger pipes tend to think that they have less bias than people with smaller pipes because they see things that people with smaller pipes don't see. Right. That's a totally different thing than thinking about where that pipe should be pointed in the first place. Huh. It's like, I've got a bigger telescope than you. I'm like, great, you're pointing it in the wrong direction. Like, it doesn't matter if you're, it's not about whether you're smarter or not. It's about whether or not you're actually adapting to the situation on the ground, right? Yeah. Um, and so th this, it, it's probably, in fact, what we found in the paper is that people who are smarter tend to have bigger blind spots and they tend to be more committed to not discovering those blind spots because yeah. their intelligence, yeah, makes them, they yeah, part of their identity is I'm smarter. I see more than other people do. And then when someone's like, no, you don't see everything though. And they go, I don't like you. And they, they, you know, they, their <laughs> ego kicks in. Yeah. And so for me that the user research is a, is like a, it's like a safety net that I use to make sure I don't get too high on my horse or too high in my saddle um, about what I think I know about a problem. Um, almost to the point that when I step in, like I said, I think earlier in the episode, I was just like, I just, I don't even pretend anymore. Like I know, but yeah. I, I, what I do sell, and this is what I sell to people is like, I'm not going to sell you an answer. I'm going to sell you a systematic rigorous method to finding the right answer, which by the way, isn't going to be the, any of the ones that we think it's going to be, but it's probably going to be the right one. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so the research is, is more about being less wrong than it is about being anything else. Um, I want I want to go back 
So I want to make sure I got this right. Did you say that most AB tests tell you that the B is correct? That the A, that the B is not correct. The B is not correct. Yeah. So, so most AB tests perform worse than a coin flip. Why? And why is that? Well, because, um, um, so we have, we have a lot of talk over the last decade from startup, lean startup about hypothesis testing. Okay. And if you read that book, it's all about ways in which to test your hypotheses. So it's given that your hypotheses is worth testing, but as you know, uh, experiments, the, the, these kinds of experiments um, are a garbage in, garbage out problem. Meaning, right. if you're not, if your hypothesis sucks, your data is going to also suck. Yeah. The problem is, is that there's nothing in your data that's going to tell you about how to get your hypothesis better. And so, um, so the thing that Eric failed to recognize is that there are decades of rigorous methodology that we have figured out about how to use data driven methods to develop hypotheses. Is that we were like, oh yeah, we test our hypotheses. We test our, I was like, okay, well, where do hypotheses come from? Right. It's like the kid asking mom and dad, like mom, where do babies come from? Right. Do, do the storks deliver them? I have a, an equivalent question to all the lean startup people. I'm like, where do hypotheses come from? Huh. Well, where they come from is your head, which is a function of your anecdotal subjective experience of the world up to that point. And, and so there's a couple of biases embedded in almost every hypothesis that go unchecked. And one of that is called false consensus bias, which is we tend to think false consensus is that I tend to think falsely that more people have consensus with my way of thinking than not, okay. which is that like, I tend to, it's a, by the way, this is a feature, not a bug. It's a bug that is a feature of human cognition is that, um, we tend to think that, uh, more people agree with us than don't. So when you have an, a founder who's going, we should make it like this, and we should make it like this because I'm solving my own problem. It's like, well, great. The way that you wanted that problem solved is probably has less generalizes less to the way other people want it solved than you think it does. Yeah. And you, if you don't have some mechanism in place, like user research to, to counterbalance that bias or point that out to you, you're going to spend a lot, you're going to waste a lot of money following that rabbit hole down. Uh -huh. um, there's another bias called uh, attribution error which is when we evaluate the behavior of other people, we tend to think that their behavior is a function of their innate character, not a function of their situation. And so an example of this is like, uh, if I show up late to a meeting, um, most people will think that's because I can't have my shit together. I just like, I, that I'm a sloppy, disorganized person. Right. Um, if, if you show up late for a meeting, you're going to be like, sorry, like there was traffic and like the parking lot attendant couldn't like do some stuff or any of that. You know, it was about the situation. It was about, and you know, things that were happening to you in the environment that your behavior is a byproduct of the environment you're operating in. And we tend to think that people's behaviors are a function of who they are not a reaction to the situations that they're, they happen to find themselves that's in. That's interesting. And, and that's actually why personas don't work, period. Like <laughs> if you come up with a persona that is at best like the Harry Potter version of like what your customers actually are, like it's just, it's a very fancy 
fiction. It's so, you're, just, so you're anti-persona. I I am I am not anti-persona actually. I I think that persona should be built starting with a behavior and then you look at what are interesting clusters of characteristics. Mm. So so personas start with characteristics and then they use that to predict behaviors. Okay. And that's just empirically the wrong way to do that. Um I just look at the entire literature of Kahneman and Tversky just shows that like what we think about other people is a very poor predictor about future behavior. Huh. Um, and so those two biases happen a lot like that. Those are embedded in any, any decision that a founder or a product person is going to make. And if you don't have a method for popping your own blind spot bubbles, you're, you are like probably going to be performing worse than a coin flip right? We see that with the AB tests. We say that with the profound failure of startups, which is that you probably should just not do that idea at all, huh. right? Uh, it's just like most of them shouldn't exist. And that's why they fail. Um, and there's another reason why they right. fail, which has everything to do about how well founders get along. But I think that's sort of out of the, out of the scope of this conversation. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's so, so the reason why AB tests fail is that A is your hypothesis you know, and, and B, uh, and so if you don't have a really great hypothesis or you came upon it based on luck, you're going to have a bunch of myth-making about why that works. You're going to have a bunch of myth-making about the causality of that thing. And this is what I love about user research is that you get to ask why things happen. Mm. You get to observe people do things. You don't have to sort of intuit what you think happened or why it happened and then write a query to to analyze and filter your analytics data, right? Yeah. And so um, so it's it's the bias piece is that we we miscalculate and misjudge what other people will like we misjudge the behavior of other people like what they will do and we totally misjudge why they do it. Um and as a feature of being human. And if you don't again have uh some sort of structure in place or mechanism in place to protect you from yourself, yeah. then you're, you're going to be making decisions that are more that are like, if they work out, it's probably because of luck or privilege, <laughs> honestly. Um, and for me, I really did not want, I wanted to be better than a coin coin toss you yeah. know, in my career. Like, you know, VCs will be like, Oh yeah, well, you know, you have, you invest, make 20 investments and then one works out and sort of pays for the rest. And I go, great. But, I'm what about the ones that don't work out? Like what happens to their lives where the ones didn't work out, right? Like yeah. I don't want to be the one that doesn't work out. All 20 of those founders thought they were going to be the one. And yet here we are, you know, here we sit. And yeah. like, I don't want, I only have one life. I can't do, I can't restart the next 10 years. Right. And so I, I want to, you know, reduce as much of as possible. And I think I said earlier about being less wrong. Um, I think that's the goal. I think there was a great Bill Belichick quote from a long time ago, which is just like, in order to start winning, you have to first stop, stop losing. Huh. And I find that user research is really good at isolating what clearly should not be done. Um, and oftentimes what clearly should not be done was the favorite, you know, the, the, the favorite pet project of what should be done by some designer or some, some founder or some executive. So yeah, it's a, it's a great way to sort of develop 
contrarian views that tend to be more right than than not. That's incredible, man. Well, yeah, thank you again. Yeah, Travis. Uh, thanks for letting me go fun. on my diatribe. No, it's, no, uh, it's, it's, super... it's a thing I've thought a lot about. Honestly, <laughs> no, it's, it's fun to listen to it, man. Fun yeah. to talk to you. Well, you so you've done you've done, I mean, you've done a PhD. So like you, a PhD is four years of doing this kind of work, right? Like where it's like eight years, man. It's eight. Well, yeah, depending on how it is. So you're was it? Remind me of your PhD again? Anthropology. Uh. Art history, technically. Art history, yeah. It is still, uh, still archaeology. It's really archaeology. So it was uh, the art and culture of a of a group that was pre Inca in Peru. So think mm. four hundred to six hundred was kind of like their their best time. I think maybe up to eight hundred, and then massive collapse after eight hundred. What happened? What caused the collapse? uh it it was el nino it was it was oh. environmental related actually it was like following um following katrina i was like concerned for the united states because this was a culture where their their biggest thing they ever created like the the their biggest building biggest pyramid was pretty sizable it was huge I mean, uh what would it be compared to It'd be compared to like um a full block length maybe six story building so like a pretty sizable thing for for you know just people without you know the help of the wheel doing things right um there was a huge massive rain and flood and they expended a lot of resources to to rebuild and then it happened again like three years later and then they could it seems like they couldn't recover from that one it was just like they put all their energy going back into it so it's so far so good, but when they rebuilt, and this could be controversial, but when they rebuilt New Orleans after that last time, it was like, oh, you know, it's under sea level. It's in a great place for hurricanes. Like, do we really, is it the best use of our resources to rebuild this city in the same location? Or do we potentially learn from this thing? Uh, so, so far, you know, 12 years later, it's still okay, but. I, I, I'm still concerned that we keep pumping resources. Like when, when like huge natural disasters strike, you know, major, major areas that are like prone to this problem. Manhattan. Yeah. Well, Houston. Uh, probably Florida, probably Miami, probably be another one. Coming oh my, up. yeah. I mean the entire, I, I've seen research that like 70, 80% of Florida will be underwater and by 2060 or something. Like yeah. That. So it's like, if which if, is honestly not a big loss for me personally but <laughs> ah, i'm a florida gator so there's there's parts of it that i still love. oh sure yeah but, no. uh, but, it, but at the same time you know i was in that area at that time it's like whoa like like we're gonna have limited resources as we move forward so is it i know people like uh are attached to the place they grew up and they they don't want to leave but like if if you know nature you see they're changing or if it's just kind of like whatever if we're just in like a, an epoch that it, the climate is different for what it is um then is it worth putting all this money back into it with the very likely probability that there will be another hurricane in new orleans it will flood again mm -hmm. like miami is very close to the water table like what the water level like 
if it flooded, do we really need to put all that money into that one place? Or can we like learn as a culture and as a society, like, okay, well, let's go to the places that are more forgiving, mm-hmm. which unfortunately in LA is like, oh shit, well, I'm asking for more people to come here. But like, uh, if that means that there's, we're not losing $60 billion a year for, for rebuilding other places that we're going to need it again, no matter what, like, yeah, maybe, we could have some skyscrapers here. I mean, that would be a better answer. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's going to be a less controversial thing uh, going for. I mean, probably you use the word controversial is probably controversial at the time, but I think in retrospect, with everything that happened with New York, uh, with Houston, um, yeah, you know, where I I mean, walking. I think I think it's it, that looks pretty prescient. A pretty prescient question. Less controversial in retrospect, I think. Uh, you know, to your point, uh, it's an interesting parallel because as I was walking in here, I was quickly responding to my team on Slack and stuff like that. And I looked up on my, I was like, "Wow, this is the rain has really picked up." And I looked up at my windshield. And I'm like, "Oh, that's hail." I'm in Manhattan Beach, in Los Angeles, and it's hailing. I had to remember the word for sleet. Right. I was like, oh, wait, it's not, it's not really hail. It's it's not freezing rain. Cause I know freezing rains when it like falls from the sky. And, and I used freezes. to live on the East coast. I used to go to school in upstate New York. These are things I used to have in the back of my hand. Oh. But yeah, I was like, oh, this is sleet. This is sleeting. It's like kind of slush coming from the sky. Mm-hmm. It's not rain. It's mm-hmm. not snow. And it's not, it's not, it weren't at the point I saw it. It wasn't like hail balls that were sticking. It was like slush coming on the window, but yeah, Manhattan beach at, you know, Two o'clock in the afternoon. Two o'clock in the afternoon. That's wild. Yeah. And I it was amazing uh driving from Santa Monica. I had to get on the 10 to the 405 South. And so I was pointed eastward towards downtown. Okay. And I saw the mountains behind them. And oh, I was yeah. like, is that snow? Yeah. That was the first time I have seen that much like I've seen snow there. Uh or that much snow on those mountains. And I was like, that's all right. This is it's getting hard to ignore now. Um, but yeah, I think I think, um, you know, the court, you know, we, we only do things when we feel like them. And oftentimes we only do things when we feel like the work of working towards the upside is better than preventing the downside, right? Like we're only going to do things when it, 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 we all have our own inner economist in our head. Um, and uh, there's a really awesome research paper called Neural Predictors of Purchases from 2006, um, which shows the actual brain mechanisms in the midbrain, um, how people look at a product and then look at a price and what's flashing on in their heads. And um, it's a it's a fascinating thing around human behavior is that like we only we only at the end of the day we only do it because we feel like it. The reasons huh. why we make up for that are. Most mostly just stories. Um, they have very little predictive value. Of what what people is why in user research it's really important to do both to ask them what they're thinking and why they thought they did that. But you have to calibrate that. You have to balance that with what you observe them actually doing. And I've done this. I'm sure. I don't know if you've seen this. You've done this in research you've done. But like, I will. I will watch somebody contradict themselves four or five times in the same session. Um, and you know, as a researcher, you can't pop that bubble for them because then they're going to suddenly be reminded that they're being watched again and they're going to start like filtering their answers to you, which is not very helpful for you. But, um, I think, I think it's that 
I think a lot of PMs and a lot of user researchers and a lot of founders wish that wasn't the case for humans. I think they don't want to live in a world where that happens to be the case. And I think a great competitive advantage is if you embrace it and then you embrace the messiness, you embrace the contradictions and you, you, you know, what I always say is that a contradiction is just simply a shared, like all, all things that two, a contradiction are two branches that have a root, a shared root that you can't see. And I think that that's, uh, that's, I think that's a cool, I, I, I think that whenever you see contradictions and whenever you see, why, why aren't people just not doing this? That's an opportunity to go deeper. And usually when you go deeper, you find a really elegantly simple solution to a really thorny problem. Interesting. And I, I think that, that for me is also the attraction to sort of a lot of this research is that it's like treasure hunting. That's incredible, man. And there you have it. A few extra innings here with Travis and I. So many terrific ideas came out of that. Glad we could share that with you all. I want to thank Travis again for being on the show. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, PMALA and Uruit. And uh, we'd like to thank you all for joining us one more time. We'll catch you next time on Product in LA. Mm-hmm.